This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you are listening to The Cable. It is Friday night. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. It's 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson. It's turning out to be quite the day for financial markets. Let me give you some of the price action that we are seeing at the moment. European equities battered this afternoon. FTSE 100 down over, well, kind of circa 150 points, down by over 2%. CAC Carantz trading down by over 2% as well. DAX down by 1.5%. Um, so basically, Europe under pressure. The S&P is now down by 1.5%, trading at 28.11. We're down by 43 points. The emerging market story looks pretty bleak like right now. Uh, the Turkish lira, and these are all against the dollar, down by 5%. The Brazilian real down by 2.55%. The Mexican peso down by one59 uh, The market is heading for safety. Uh, the yen has been catching quite a strong bid. Uh, we've got an inverted US curve, three months to 10 years. Apparently, that's a useful prediction predictor of recessions, uh, though I have to wonder whether or not is that is the case at the moment. And we have a German 10-year that is in negative territory. We saw some very weak PMI data uh, a little bit later, uh, sorry, earlier on out of Germany, first thing this morning, um, and that really shocked the market. But I think what we're seeing today is a broader kind of delayed reaction, I think, to what the uh, the Fed told us a little bit earlier on this week. Let's kick it around. Let's get a sense of where we are and what is going on. Cameron Kreis, macro strategist for Bloomberg, joining us in our New York studio. Sarah Ponzek is there as well, I understand. Cross-asset reporter here at Bloomberg. Sarah, your take on the price action. I would agree. It seems like yesterday was almost a honeymoon phase for markets after the Fed meeting because the initial takeaway was, okay, the Fed is now on the sidelines. Things are going to be great. All of a sudden, you get some more economic data from Europe, particularly Germany, not looking too great, looking pretty ugly, also over in Asia. And now the worries go back to, okay, what was the Fed actually so worried about? Are we actually seeing a slowdown across the globe to an extent that would really warrant the central bank stepping back. And that is what they did. Mr. Kreis? Well, I don't think equities really have a scooby about how to interpret the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, the initial impulse on Wednesday was to rally, then we sold off, then rally yesterday, sell off today. Uh, the one unambiguous signal is from the yield curve where we've had this sort of relentless flattening, particularly, uh, Sarah alluded to, the three-month tenure which is um, seen as like the most accurate predictor of the fortunes of the economic cycle. Uh, And it's kind of ironic, but not surprising, that as they've endeavored to deliver this sort of dovish uh, tilt to their policy, they've ended up inverting the curve because the primary mechanism of their policy at the moment is this forward guidance. And if you're essentially guiding that we're not going to move rates for a while, uh, the market interprets that as you're done moving rates. And guess what? They buy sort of the highest yielding securities on the Treasury board. And that's the back end of the curve. So um, you look at the front end of the yield curve where it's inverted uh, even more substantially. 
say, three months to five year, two, two, uh, two year to five year, that has a direct impact on the banking system. Um, now, we can see in Japan and in the Eurozone what eviscerating banking sector profitability does for your economy and for your markets. It's generally not a terribly good idea. Uh, and yet, that is what the Fed apparently um, may be <laughs> accomplishing, yep. inadvertently or not. And uh, I think net, net issues margins are a bit higher than it, the, in the United States than they are elsewhere. So the the Fed probably has a banking sector because of the nature of the capital markets as well in in the United States that's probably a little bit more robust. A little bit, say? a little bit, but uh, certainly the performance of the of of banks, specifically in financials generally, over the last forty eight hours has been one of pretty much complete revulsion. Right. It's no question that the banks are absolutely hating this. We just continue to see them sell off and sell off. And it's the big investment banks. It's also the smaller regional banks. And something I actually found really interesting, I was looking at the underperformance of small caps right now versus the S&P. And yes, a lot of that does have to do with banks because banks make up 25% of the Russell 2000. But if you look at so far this month's underperformance relative to the broader market, it's now on pace for the worst month since 09. Uh, so if you try to take away some of the signals from the market, clearly banks, cyclical areas, smaller caps, which many have been looking at saying, look, we need to see a rally in small caps to confirm that the rally we saw earlier in the week, at least, uh, could be sustained. It's not checking off. Is the, Fed signal, is the market signaling that the Fed's made a policy mistake? Well, I tend to view it not in that regard. I think it kind of helps if you view financial markets as sort of spoiled children and the Fed is the sort of uh, over-concerned, over-protective helicopter parent. Um, the financial markets um, squalled at the fourth quarter of last year, and the Fed duly delivered the sweeties of their choice uh, over the last few months. And now that the Fed has basically said, well, the sweet bag is empty, uh, what does your typical spoiled toddler do when he hears that there's no more goodies in the bag. They start squalling again. And that's, to an extent, what we're seeing. Particularly when they're hopped up on sugar already. Well, <laughs> quite, quite. Um, you know, the other, the other analogy is one of, if you will, a, sort of a, a fighter, a boxer, or a, one of these MMA people, uh, who once you've beaten your opponent into the, into the, into the dust, uh, sort of the adrenaline, the adrenaline high that you had during the bout sort of wears off. And now that the, the financial markets have sort of conquered the Fed, that adrenaline uh, that helps spur the rally over the last few, uh, few months is, uh, is ebbing. Sarah, to what extent is what we're seeing right now something of a head fake, though? Because I've talked to a number of people over the last couple of days who basically are saying that the, the, what we're seeing at the moment, particularly with the flat curve and possibly the inversion, is is not a signal that the U.S. economy is in trouble. In fact, it is basically a fairly straightforward, there are more buyers than sellers in the bond market because the Fed has decided uh, that it's not going to be as aggressive with its uh, runoff and it's going to be continuing to repurchase and it's going to be doing that across the curve. And, and basically, the market is readjusting to that. I've heard that more than once today. And look, we'll have to see how it does play out because some are saying, look, if we see the inversion today in the three-month and 10-year, but if it's only today, if it doesn't last too long, then maybe it shouldn't be so worrisome. Also, 
a lot of people I speak with, they're watching the charts and the numbers, numbers that really have been holding lately and that between like the 2800, 2830 level. And someone said, if 2825 can hold, right now we are below that, then then maybe we can stay above it. But if we get down to 2800, which we are pretty darn close, I will say, then it could become more than a head fake. Because as of now, that has turned from resistance into support. What happens if it flips the switches? But that's the question, because whether or not this is a head fake or not, it seemed like yesterday everyone was so optimistic. The markets got exactly what they wanted. The Fed is on the sidelines. Economic data, at least in the United States, has been fine. It hasn't been great. It hasn't been terrible by any means. So many were saying that gives us uh, the prerogative. It gives us the ability to keep going higher but we're going to have to see what happens going into next week, because if the sell off continues, I mean, you don't want to start off the weekend on bad footing. No, you certainly don't. Well, I generally don't. And it's nearly <laughs> the weekend here. So that's probably good advice to live with. Uh, Karen Kreis and Sarah Ponzek are going to stay with us. Quick update on the markets. Uh, Turkish Lira now down by 5% against the dollar. Uh, the Real, uh, the Brazilian Real down by 2.42%. It's definitely a risk off story out there in global markets. Brent crude down by 2.2%. We'll carry on the conversation. We'll talk more about this risk-off sentiment we're seeing this afternoon. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5.10 in London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on digital, uh, DAB Digital in the London area. I'm Guy Johnson. You can also find this show on all of your Bloomberg devices as well. Recap on the market action. S&P trading 28.14, down by 1.4%. FTSE 100 finished down over 2% or 147 points, just above the 7,200 level. Uh, we were uh, 73 not that long ago. Uh, so we've seen equity selling uh, over the last few days. Uh, emerging markets, though, have been absolutely pummeled and continue to be. Um, we are also seeing quite a lot of weakness when it comes to what is happening in the commodity space. Copper, Dr. Copper, trading down by 1.51%. Bond yields continue to be strongly bid. Uh, you're seeing big days for the back end of the European curves. The Japanese uh, market is uh, has been strongly bid. Um, and we've got a negative German 10-year uh, which is worth paying attention to as well. Let's come back to uh, Cameron Kreis, uh, macro strategist here at Bloomberg, and Sarah Ponzo, cross-asset reporter uh, here at Bloomberg as well, both of them joining us from New York. Cameron, let me um, let me come back to this, this idea of this inverted curve. My understanding always was that equity markets continue to trade quite strongly for, for many, many months after the curve has inverted. Does it feel different? Well, I think it's too early to say. Um, I would offer the perspective that when the curve first inverts, people generally think that, oh, this is just some random noise. You know, that was the case in late 2005. Uh, it was the case in 2000. Um, it was probably not the case, in fairness, uh, in the uh, early mid-90s because that was uh, – um, that was a pretty vicious tightening cycle that the Fed put in yep. in 1994-95. Uh, um, so I, I wouldn't be too inclined to believe the casual sort of waving away of the significance of an inversion, although in fairness, the entire curve hasn't inverted. So 2 stands is still clinging to, um, clinging to positive territory. 
I can't Sarah, remember what was what was what, what did you ask originally? I asked before? you about whether or not equity markets. You you, you definitely disappeared down a rabbit hole at some point. It's yeah. true. <laughs> Do equity markets keep rallying once the curve is inverted? All evidence typically, points to yes. Typically, uh, yes. The thing that should scare the pants off of an equity investor is not the inversion per se, but it's the subsequent steepening, because that is uh, yep. That's the signal that the Grim Reaper. Uh, he's not knocking at the door. He's poised over your shoulder with his scythe, ready to harvest, <laughs> ready to harvest your financial soul. You're really harvest- cheerful to be around this afternoon. You know well, that, mate. I tell you what, the weather uh, in New York is like a a, a classic. Can we, can we, can classic we blame the weather for this? Classic blame the weather for classic you saying British, harvest your soul. <laughs> it's classic British January. You know, it's about five degrees centigrade drizzling with rain, gray. So the oh, mood horrible. is pretty grim. Is that what you're saying? It well, is. well, today it is. Uh, I, I, you know, I just didn't have... Sarah no... sounds pretty chirpy. Well, she must I have had... I always sound chirpy. I, I, I have, I have a lengthy walk from the station to the office because I, I refuse to take the subway. No, and, I can back him up. It's grim here. And I did not have an umbrella today, so I got rained on. So it put me in a... You're not going to get any mood. sympathy from a, a British audience. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's, <laughs> it's our little taste of, of your life. Every single day. But no, I mean, yes, typically when you look at history, after the yield curve inverts, you still have a while to go. A lot of people say 12, 18 months, it can range between then. And also, if you're an equity investor and equities keep grinding higher and we do have, say, a year, a year and a half until say a recession really does materialize, typically in that last year you get a pretty strong run-up, and that's painful to miss out on. I would Absolutely. say, sorry yep. if I can interject. I Be would cheerful, say, but yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I would say, sorry, my, my best game show host. Um, I would say that people tend to, there's a school of thought that we shouldn't, uh, we should disregard the yield curve. I think you could argue that it's going to be a more timely signal, given that foreign guidance is informing the, uh, the market's decision on whether to buy or sell bonds. It's interesting. The president is going to nominate a very big supply-side guy to the Fed. Clearly, the president has got other ideas as to the uh, the probability of a recession uh, coming down the pike towards us. Karen and Sarah are going to stay with us. We probably should talk about Europe next. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable 18 minutes past the hour. Um, If you've already decided to leave the office and you are on your way home, um, you may have some positions that are uh, still out there. Let me just update you on kind of where we sit right now. 28.12, S&P 500, down by 1.5%. Seems to have stabilized a little bit over the last kind of 20 minutes, but not much. Europe finished pretty soft, uh, to be honest. Uh, the bond market continues to be a significant focus. We've seen a threes tens uh, inversion in the United States. Uh, we've seen a German 10-year go negative today. Oil is on offer this afternoon in a reasonably big way. One of the catalysts for this um, was the Fed. Another one, a more immediate one today, was some very weak German PMI data on the manufacturing fronts and quite 
sort of difficult days coming out of France uh, as well. Is the ECB behind the curve? Is the market basically telling the ECB that it's got to get on with it, that what it's done thus far in that rather kind of uh, un or incipient, uh, incipient um, Teltro that was on offer a few days back, to which we still don't have the details, that actually they're going to have to go significantly further. Cameron Cries, macro strategist, uh, Sarah Ponzek, cross asset reporter, both here at Bloomberg. Cameron, the ECB looks like it is it is behind the curve. The Fed is being much more reactive. Draghi needs to step up. But here's my question to you. Is Draghi unable to act at this point in the way that he would want to do so because he's done in October? The ECB can't do anything. They're pushing on a string, okay? Uh, negative. The best thing that the ECB could do for the European economy is to hike rates because the deposit rate at minus 40 basis points is a tax on the banking system. Um Keeping uh, the essentially the the return that banks earn on their assets uh, at such low levels, whether it's the, the the three trillion euros on deposit at the ECB, or whether banks owning high quality bonds, which they're forced to do by regulation, uh, their liabilities uh, in terms of their deposit base are floored at zero or a few basis points above zero. So the ECB is essentially forcing these institutions to lock in these negative rate spreads and some not insignificant portion of their balance sheet. Uh, is it any wonder that the share prices are tanking and that the sort of uh, animal spirits of credit creation are um, not as animalian as, as you might like? At the same time, uh, the good burgers of the German government uh, seem to insist on running a budget surplus, even though there is a shortfall of demand. Um, Germany is sort of caught in the unique spot at the center of the, the Venn diagram of trouble uh, in terms <laughs> of they export to China, where demand is tanking. They export a lot to the UK, where I needn't tell you what's going on there. Uh, Germany runs this massive current account surplus, at last count, 7.5% of GDP, which again is consistent with a shortfall of domestic demand. It's, it's nothing short of lunacy that the government is insisting on running a large budget, budget surplus. They should be running a deficit, uh, helping to spur demand. Uh, and the fact that they don't is one of the reasons, I think, that the economy has rolled over so, so sharply. And the ECB at this point, there's not a lot they can do. I, I'm I'm pleased that you think that we all know what's going on in the UK because to be honest, I'm here and I haven't got a clue. Well, I I, I would I would use here. I would use the I would use the technical terminology for it, but I think that we might get uh, we in might trouble. get in trouble with Ofcom. So, um. Sarah, um, we don't want to do that. So let's move on. Um, what is your sense of what's going on in Europe? As you guys watch it from afar, I it, it went from being kind of this series of temporary factors which came together. Uh, at the centre of the Venn, Venn diagram of whatever it was that Cameron just described, um, and and basically kind of put Europe in a bad spot. But it was seen as being temporary. As the market now moved on, does the market now believe that basically Europe is in a much more structurally negative situation than was assumed only six months ago? It does seem like overall everyone over here on this side of the sea is looking over at Europe and saying, at least it's not us. It's a bit of a mess with Brexit and the data that we continue to see come out. But across the board. I'm amazed at how many investors I speak with 
are still very positive on Europe. The idea is that, well, it can't get any worse. Brexit will have to be solved. The data will have to rebound eventually, and things should get better. In fact, if you look at Bank of America, one of their most recent surveys, yep. their fund manager surveys, Europe was the most crowded trade, and that just shows how hopeful people really are. Now, the question is, is this being too hopeful? Are we actually going to have a positive outcome of everything that does seem to be uh, rolling and, and continuing its downfall? But right now, people still seem optimistic and like to be positioned in Europe, interestingly enough. It's interesting. So the flow data into the ETFs would certainly would certainly back that view up. In fact, I think from a flow point of view, Europe has done has done better than the United States thus far. Cameron, how much of this is down to China? I, it's fascinating that the Chinese leadership is in Europe today in in Italy and going to France next week. But I was talking to um, to a well known Chinese economist earlier on who was basically saying, "Yeah, not this quarter, maybe not to, for the bulk of next quarter." But you are going to see a pickup in the Chinese uh, story. And one of the reasons why the data this morning out of Europe were so bad was the German export machine. Domestically, Europe's actually doing all right. It's the exports is where the weakness is. Well, yeah, but you know what? If you hang your hat, again, if you have a 7.5% of GDP current account surplus, you're hanging your hat on exports. Yep. Uh, you know, At some point, doing okay isn't good enough. Uh, uh, on the domestic front, you need to do better than okay if the rest of the world is, is struggling. And um, yeah, maybe in a couple of quarters, the lagged impact of the moderate um, stimulus that the Chinese have put into place will will filter through. Um, that's a reasonable proposition, but listen, the next six months might be tough. So uh, it's again, it's just it's just lunacy. The, the policy, this sort of uh, straitjacket that the uh, that the government seems to, to have embraced and put on itself. Sarah, could you go and either buy him a drink or get him a chocolate bar cheer or him something, up somehow. something that's going to cheer him up? Oh, Guys, Lisa, thank I you. I love being there. We have chocolate in the building. He doesn't have to go too far. I know. I think he needs some <laughs> and maybe something stronger. Um, thank you very much indeed, both of you. Sarah Ponzek and Cameron Christ. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson, 5.30 in the City of London. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the markets around the world. Something of a risk-off story developing or have, or I guess it's already developed. Uh, the S&P is down by 1.6% now, tra- now trading 28.10%. Uh, we had a pretty negative session here in Europe, FTSE 100, down 147 points, down by over 2%. Uh, we saw the German 10-year yield going negative. We've seen the three-month to 10-year spread in the United States in the bond market uh, inverting. That's apparently never a good thing. So what do we make of all of this? Well, let's try and find out. Let's try and piece it together. Joe Weisenthal, executive editor of uh, news for Bloomberg Digital and co-anchor of What Do You Miss? Joining me now in New York. What's going on, Joe? I'm not totally sure, to be honest. Um, Fair enough. Okay, I guess the rates moves are not particularly surprising because we have this very uh, dovish Fed. 
So that's easy enough to understand. There really does not seem to be any more appetite to do many more rate hikes, maybe one more next year in this cycle. Okay, so I can see why that is, uh, you know, depressing yields. The weakness, there's the U.S. data, it's not that great. I mean, it's not that good, but it's not that bad either. So it's not like the U.S. economy appears to be falling off a cliff. In fact, uh, we got uh, PMIs today. They were below expectations, but they were still growing. Uh, housing sales in the U.S. were solid. They're actually very good. They came in much better than expectations. So maybe we're starting to see a bit of a trough in uh, in uh, the U.S. in uh, the housing market, which has been weak. I don't know. It's hard to understand. You know, like it's easy to explain what's going on in Europe, where the economy is clearly not good with uh, very few green shoots. It's a little bit harder to see why everyone is so nervous about the U.S. So what's causing what's causing this sell-off today then? I, I, I've heard a lot of people talking about the fact it's a reaction to the Fed, that basically the market doesn't believe the Fed. Yeah, but what does that mean? I, I, I'm asking you. I'm hoping you're going to come up with an answer because I've yet to hear a convincing kind of narrative around that. No, I don't, I don't really understand what the negativity towards the Fed is all about in, in this case. And I, it's, a little, it's a little muddled to me. I mean, sometimes people are like, oh, well, Powell sounded very nervous. What does he know? What's got him so spooked? I never find that convincing. I don't think that the Fed has some special access to data or some crystal ball that allows Powell to see the economy in a way that we can't, I, you know, maybe at the margins, but for the most part, we're all looking at the same data and we see an economy that maybe is not as fast as it was growing in 2018, but where it still seems like actual signs of a recession or, you know, an aggressive slowdown are pretty scarce. Uh, you know, I think that the market does believe that the Fed is not going to hike in 2019. I mean, there's, in fact, the, uh, you know, no one seems to doubt the Fed on that. So it's a little hard to see, like, what exactly, where the Fed is being tested in any way. Are you a believer in this inverted curve and and how grim a port sort of a, a sort of an outcome it portends? A lot of people seem to be kind of right. We're, we're negative threes, tens. Yeah. Um, a, a recession is coming. You know, my view on that historically has been in the past that I don't really know if the yield curve is a great recession predictor or why it should be a great recession predictor. But you might as well at least take it seriously. And so this idea, you know, the 210 is, of course, the one that people look at the most. And it's weird because we have so we have this sort of like kink in the uh, in the yield curve a little bit at the where we have a lot of uh, inversions in the short end. But the 210 is still positive. I don't know. I, I take it seriously, but I don't know why would be my answer. And I do think the Fed should probably take it seriously, um, you know, in terms of like, what is it saying? But. Again, you know, one thing that I wonder about is we're coming on quarter end and we know that yep. we've had a number of quarter end periods where we've seen a lot of funky stuff happen in uh, rates markets and fixed income markets as regulations force people to hold a bunch of safe haven assets. I think it's possible that some of what we're seeing, some of these really aggressive moves in duration could stem from that. It's, it's been a pretty good quarter, hasn't it, thus yeah. far? Yeah, it's been a really good quarter. And you see, uh, you know, various sort of cyclical sections of the market behaving very well. I mean, look at semiconductor stocks. Yeah. They hit an all-time high earlier this week. That is not something that one typically associates with a market that fears a recession.
That's safe to say. How grim does Europe look from over there? To me, what I see in Europe is essentially more of the same. No prospects for anything changing unless something happens on the fiscal side. And arguably, you could say that ever since the crisis, the, the growth, uh, I probably because of weakness in China and sort of various end consumer markets, uh, exports out of Europe look pretty bad and maybe some of the worst that they've been in a long time. But ultimately, the upside has never been particularly compelling as long as Europe is so dependent on central bank monetary policy to boost growth because it's only so effective in Europe with such a fragmented economy. So what happens next? Do you, I, I I really take your point about the end of the quarter. I think it's yeah. one that it's one that's really worth making. I think it's it's kind of if I was going into this weekend and and things looked a little bumpy and kind of I was a bit concerned, I'd be quite tempted to lighten up as well. Um, and, and I think there's probably an element of what what we of that in what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. But the president, I, we've got we've got the trade narrative coming yeah. up. I know the president's trying to kind of play cool on that one. Uh, he's just apparently going to appoint Stephen Moore to the to the FOMC. Yeah. Uh, he's a massive supply side guy. The president's going to keep gunning this economy. The uh yeah, exactly. The the Moore thing is a little weird. It's not like, you know, there, he's going to be dovish, right? Because the pers- the perception yeah. is not that Moore himself is a dove. The perception is that Moore will be a Trump lackey for lack of a better word. You, maybe that's unfair, but I do think that is the perception that he'll do whatever Trump wants. And according to our own reporting at Bloomberg, basically Moore got the job because he wrote a piece in the journal attacking the Fed. Um, so I think it's not so much that Moore will come in as a dove, though he will. But I think the thing that people are going to be talking about is that Moore is coming in and maybe does not have the academic credibility that some of the others have. You could argue that about the the the, the Jay Powell, though, couldn't you? Yeah, you totally could. Um, but I think Powell is perceived to be less political, and Moore is perceived. Again, I'm not saying this is my view. I'm saying, but I do believe that Moore is perceived as like, okay, now here's a guy that will really just like, this is he'll do. He's he's here to do Trump's work. Yeah. Regardless of and again, like things could be in concert right now because right now you have a pretty dovish Fed and you have a president who wants the Fed to be dovish. So there's not necessarily going to be any tension right now. I doubt Moore is going to push make the Fed even more dovish than they are. It seems it's hard to imagine how they could get more dovish yeah. than their current stance. I don't think that's it. I just think that there is an element of like this feels like a very political political pick. Okay. We'll carry on the conversation in just a minute. Let me just update everybody on the markets. S&P uh, is looking like it's going to test the 2800 level. Uh, we are certainly marching our way towards it at the moment. Volume actually is okay right now, certainly versus the last 30-day average, which is interesting. Um, volume was a little higher here in Europe, but um, actually looks pretty decent in, in the States right now. Uh, in terms of what we're going to be talking about next, well, we haven't talked about Brexit, but we should probably get a sense of what is coming up next next week as well, because Brexit's going to be part of that narrative. Uh, but there are a few other things going on that are going to be worth focusing on as well. Joe's going to stick around. I'm going to stick around. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening, 5.40 in London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Let's talk about what is going to happen next week because we are certainly dealing with a fairly difficult end to this week. So let's give a, uh, a sense of what's coming up next week and figure out whether there's any optimistic outcomes that we should be focusing on. Uh, Monday, Apple, this uh, this announcement that we're expecting um Video services, news services expected uh, to be on deck there. Tuesday, uh, we may get this uh, actually still Apple-related, this Qualcomm patent case. Then we get kind of towards the main events of the week. So Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and U.S. Trade Representative uh, Ambassador Lighthizer traveling to Beijing. We get fourth quarter GDP uh, out of the U.S. as well. We get some data out of the Eurozone. Um, we've got this Uber story today about listing on the NICE Friday. It looks like we're going to get the lift uh, trading debut. Uh, we are also just on the kind of the Brexit narrative going to get a whole series of votes it looks like next week. Indicative votes trying to figure out exactly what there is a majority for in the House of Parliament uh, rather than what there is uh, a majority against in the House of Parliament. So Brexit looks like it's going to take uh, another twist and possibly another turn next week. Uh, I just want to focus a little bit on what is happening with the IPO story over mm. in the United States, Joe. Um, Lyft coming up. Like, is this? It strikes me that this is there is a there's something potentially of a rush on here to get to market. Is that, yeah. am I being too cynical? No, it feels like this. We have Wall Street Journal coming out this afternoon and saying Pinterest is accelerating its IPO plans. I mean, you have a lot of companies. It really took their time, and that's kind of been the story of the, you know, the unicorns that everyone's talked to death about. But that that really yeah. took their time, uh, growing, becoming well capitalized, becoming really big companies, and deciding not to go public for various reasons. And I think the view is right now that okay, like things are pretty good in the market, and that a, uh, you know, things aren't always going to be good, and that there really isn't, and most of these companies still like. Uh, are not profitable or still have rooms to grow, still have room to grow or have really figure out their own business plans. And so now is the time because it's not obvious that there's a lot of private capital still that wants to like invest at them at bigger valuations. They probably have a lot of employees that would like to get liquidity and so forth. So it feels like a, a, it's certainly going to be a, a moment this year, a bit of a rush to get to market. And sometimes people make a deal about who's first or whatever. I'm not, you know, I, I, in the end, I doubt that's a particularly important thing. But do you, this, I can't, I shouldn't read this as an indicator that everybody's kind of like, oh wow, I, it, we, we are in the very kind of late stages of this yeah. market rally, and and kind of we don't get out now, we ain't getting out. I mean, people might think that, but I do think it's worth. You know, it's almost kind of like what I was saying about the Fed. Like, does anyone know anything that someone else doesn't know? Fair. Like, that's like what I – It's people think – that's not an unreasonable concern. But what does anyone know? Like, what, 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 what would the people taking Lyft public now know about what's going to happen to market conditions a year from now or two years from now? Everyone's just guessing. They are probably guessing, but I, but I guess their point would be – um, we are, we are, I, th there is, there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that insiders generally are a useful guide to what is going on within businesses. That's true. And, and, and I'm just wondering if there's, there's something to that in this. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think, look, they, they need more money. And you look at Lyft, they lost a billion dollars last year. It's a long yep. way from having 
It appears to be a long way from having a sustainable business model, but uh, and so it makes sense. Raise some money, have a have a uh, have a public stock. Um, you know, yeah, it, it, they are selling. You know, at the end, like it is. You know, the, an IPO, and this to your point is spot on. An IPO is the ultimate insider selling event. Yep. And so, to the extent that you look at insiders who buy and sell as timing, it is not unreasonable to say why are a bunch of big tech companies selling right now. Absolutely. Joe, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend, mate. Thank you very much indeed for spending some time on The Cable this afternoon. Joe Weisenthal joining us from New York. Up next, uh, a conversation with Evercore ISI's head of central bank strategy. Some interesting things to say about this inverted curve. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. So pretty big day for global bond markets. Uh, the German market's certainly a focus of attention. We have seen an, uh, an inversion of the US yield curve. That's important. But the German 10-year going negative for the first time since 2016 is big, big news. Earlier, I spoke to Krishna Gur. Evercore, ISI, head of central bank strategy. Bonnie Quinn and I talking to him a little bit earlier on to get his take on these markets. Certainly, everyone's praying for German fiscal. The one thing that's different this time relative to the prior period of European weakness is that the place where it's weakest, Germany, is the place that has the fiscal space. It can act. This isn't Italy. It's not Spain. However, unfortunately, we all know Germans aren't big on Keynesian fiscal policy at the best of times. And at the moment, we have the end of the Merkel era, where it's not quite clear uh, who's really in charge and can move quickly and decisively in that direction, even if it's warranted for Germany's economic interests. If it's not German fiscal, feels a little bit like Europe is reliant on the rest of the world bailing it out. If China's stimulus is successful enough, Europe will clearly get a lift Obviously, dovish Fed and so forth may also help in that regard. Krishna, what's going on out there right now? We have the Turkish lira taking a dip. We have gold up to 1312 an ounce and we have equities selling off. Is the psychology changing fast today? It certainly feels that way. I mean, I would actually even uh, go a little earlier. I would say that the initial response to the Fed, the dovish Fed earlier this week, that was interesting, right? Market traded risk on initially, which is what you expect when the Fed's being dovish. Then the market went into this little bit of a funk about, you know, what's, what's happening here in terms of global growth, in terms of normalization being done, central banks not having a lot of bullets if things turn south. Yesterday, we, took, we went back to that risk-on dovish Fed. Now we're very much in risk-off mode off those PMIs and so forth, you know, showing that there's a weakness in particular in Europe, but generally in the global uh, manufacturing sector. Obviously, aspects of the curve inverting, not yet the two tens, adding to that nervousness. And my own view is that I wouldn't stress over much about the precise question of whether the curve is mildly inverted or not, but the level of the yields, particularly in Europe, is really a standout uh, warning, I think, at this point. Right, so are traders just fixing their portfolios so they go into the weekend with a little bit of safety, they can get some sleep, or is this a, a one-time shift that's going to impact things for the rest of uh, at least the quarter? Well, there is surely some, some uh, de-risking, you know, some in, in effect, you know, in a situation like this, uh, go to safety first and then think about it 
right, rather than trying to fight a dynamic that this, it's this strong in, uh, in the markets. Uh, I will say, you know, wh why do you buy uh, a bund you know, with, with a negative yield? Right? You're buying it as a deflation hedge, and you're buying it more broadly as, you know, as, as a hedge against some very extremely bad uh, economic um, outcomes or indeed political outcomes here. So this extreme scarcity of bonds, so you know, there's the structural issues here as well. Uh, but for me, the level of yields is more interesting than whether the curve is inverted by a few basis points or not inverted by a few basis points, which for me is essentially the same thing in economic terms. Can I just come back to this idea that you think that the, and, and it relates to the point you've just made about kind of where yields are at the moment and what it's signaling about where the ECB is and where the Eurozone economy is right now. Is Draghi paralysed by the fact that he is done soon? Is this the reason why the ECB is behind the Fed? The Fed seems, the Fed seems much more dynamic at the moment. The Fed, the Fed seems, like Powell seems much more reactive to what is going on in not only the US economy but the global economy. But, but Draghi's nearly done and I'm wondering who's going to replace him and whether or not we need to get to that kind of point sort of soonish. We need to name that person. We can start getting an idea of what's happening here. Well, I, I certainly think it can't help. It's clearly not helping that Draghi's approaching the end of his tenure. Um, because right now the ECB may need to think uh, both aggressively but also strategically about issues like what's the right threshold for resuming asset purchases, if not government bonds, maybe some private assets. Alternatively, you know, what do they need to do if they're not going back to asset purchases? What do they need to do in order to provide a more powerful form of easing in rate space that can actually be sustained by the banking system? Right, that could involve, for instance, coupling more aggressive forward guidance with very much more generous TLTRO bank funding and tiering to reduce the cost of the negative rate tax to the banks. But these are big decisions. So too would be, for instance, if they were to introduce a threshold, an economic threshold, like an inflation threshold for raising interest rates, rather than their current guidance, to strengthen their commitment to stay accommodative for as long as they need to. The problem with all these decisions is that they're big ones that bind the ECB well into the tenure yep. of the next president. So the question is, you know, is there a higher hurdle for Draghi taking those steps today than would be the case if he had several more years left to run? Probably there is, right? Do you think the ECB is underestimating the impact of negative rates right now? One of the other big stories we're focusing on right now is, is, is Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank getting together, the lack of profitability in the European banking sector. Um, the, the, the governor of the Bank de France has been talking about this a little bit. Do yeah. you think that the ECB needs to have a more wholesale look at what is going on in terms of the rate structure right now and the kind of maybe unintended consequences in terms of transmission? So I certainly think that they, they should be in my best understanding is they are taking, you know, looking afresh at all this stuff. Um, I have some sympathy for the ECB view, which is that there are lots of reasons why European banks are not profitable, and uh, low interest rates are not necessarily the, the only thing here. And also, you know, the difference in rates that are marginally negative or barely above zero, you know, depending on the slope of the curve, may not be dramatic in terms of their impact on the viability, profitability uh, of European banks. But my own view is that they have to look at this, not for the sake of the banks necessarily, but for the sake of their own credibility. Because right now people look at them and say, you're maxed out because you can't do anything more because you'll screw the banks.
right? And so I think that even from the classic monetary policy perspective, they have to say, listen, here's how we can deliver whatever level of stimulus is required to keep the expansion going and eventually guide inflation up, but how we can do it in a way that can be sustained by the financial system. ISI's head of central bank strategy, Krishna Guna, joining me a little bit earlier on with Bonnie Quinn. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable.